0: Hey guys, John Paulemy here, Actionable Intelligence. Today is Saturday, January 14th, and this is the weekly market update. Before we get started, a couple of uh, things I wanted to mention. We're close to 10,000 subscribers for the YouTube channel. I think we're 37 away. If you enjoy these videos, if you're getting some use out of them, do me a favor and subscribe, comment, hit the like button. It helps us out. Um, if you understand and are interested in the actual actionable themes and how I invest in these and how I speculate in these, we have the Actionable Intelligence Alert newsletter. It's available. It's a monthly. comes out monthly. We have the Discord channel where many of the subscribers participate, talk about a lot of things. This is available to you also if you're inclined to support us. Uh, The subscription terms and link is in the show notes below. And so uh, if you're inclined, feel free to support us in that manner. All right, let's get started. The um, Disclaimer, anything that you hear or see in this podcast or video is not to be taken as investment advice. I'm not a registered financial advisor. I cannot give you personal financial advice. This is for informational purposes only. We ask that you do your own due diligence on these ideas and it's your money, it's your responsibility. Okay, so one of the major themes that I've had for 2023 was the eventual return of China to the oil market. Obviously, you all know that uh, we most analysts thought that China would slowly but surely, you know, end the COVID lockdowns and the policy would change over time. They instead decided just to rip the band aid off. And so I think that uh, I'll show in some subsequent slides. We're already seeing a return to normal, close to normal. And how that's going to affect uh, commodity markets. We're seeing that in the markets. You know, we have copper over $4 a pound. We've had oil prices up like the last five days or so. Anyway, um, this is an article that I'll put a link to in the substack, this chart kind of showing the consensus views or the the views of various agencies, energy agencies and OPEC about demand for 2023. Um, they are all saying that, uh, you know, we're over 100 million barrels a day, and we'll be heading higher uh, as we get into Q2. Um, I'm, that's kind of been my view also. I've been saying that. I think that uh, I don't know how high we'll get this year. We have anywhere from 101 million barrels a day up to over 103 million barrels a day. The point being that because of the lack of investment and other things, which we've talked about ad nauseum, I'm not sure that uh, the price is going to stay where it's at if we go to a demand of 103 million barrels a day. So I wanted to post this. Um, As Chinese demand returns, you know, as the SPR starts to end, you know, is that going to be three, four million barrels of returning demand or of oil that has to come from somewhere? So we'll see. Um, I don't know the forecasting... uh, record of these entities but i just wanted to put this out here for food for thought because this is kind of consistent with what we were thinking about too we've been talking about this and uh it's just interesting to note uh sometimes you know when it's consistent like this you know we have to weigh into the fact that the possibility of a um, recession in the united states obviously in europe so these things will have to balance but we'll see how it goes eventually though the long-term thesis of the lack of investment is going to come back and bite us. I'm not sure the world has the capability currently to supply 103 million barrels a day without a major price increase. Well, we shall see. Again, we've talked about uh, Chinese demand. Um, this is uh, off a tweet. Uh, And basically, what you have here is major urban hubs see record surge in congestion, this car traffic congestion on traffic. You see overall, you just see like since they ripped the Band-Aid off, pretty much across the board in all these cities, you're seeing a major V-shaped turnaround. Um, Down here, you see another note, road traffic in China in the week ending January 11th was up 32 percentage points to 134. I guess this is the basis of the, um, uh, you know, whatever starting point they're at that they're measuring from. But you can see pretty consistently the V shaped recovery in all the cities. And if you just want to look at, you know, I think China 15 is the top 15, um, basically, cities here in an average. So this is indicative of a V shaped bounce, positive and consistent with our projections. Here's the chart I showed before on flight data in China, you can see they just started posting on this chart, the 2023 data, you can see the end of 2022 we were already recovering from early December, we had the little dip, but you can see that we're pretty much going up at like a 60 degree angle, um, like a missile shot here so. I think at the low here in early December, we were around 3,200, 3,500 flights a day internally in China. We're well over 10,000 now and continuing higher. We're getting close to levels of being normal. Um, I think international flights will be starting soon. So this is, again, you know, I don't, I've actually heard some analysts say that they don't really see this being a big deal, but I don't understand why Chinese consumers would be any different than consumers around the world. I mean, Chinese folks were locked down for three years. Um, when people emerged from lockdown in North America and Europe, they kind of went nuts on going on trips, you know, resuming their life, spending money. They had been cooped up. And I think something similar, I think I saw a projection that like over $1 trillion in spending power has been accumulated by Chinese folks during the lockdowns um i mean you just see this anecdotal data around you know travel plans and inquiries into travel is up hundreds of percent you have an earlier start this year to the chinese new year so we'll see what happens uh where this thing peaks out at and levels off at maybe it's just a spike during the chinese new year travel we'll see but um You really don't see anything in the news anymore about, you know, when they originally ripped the Band-Aid off, there was all of these uh, Armageddon scenarios and people taking pictures at crematoria where body bags were lined up and millions of Chinese are going to die. I don't see the Chinese reversing this policy. That would really have to really be something major. And I just don't see the news. There was an initial, you know, attempt by the media to create a, you know, panic narrative, but I think that's went away and people are traveling and it's not the end of the world, just like it wasn't anywhere else. So obviously people do die of the flu. They do die of COVID. They do die of respiratory distress. Um, It's unfortunate. People die every day in car accidents and every other method, but it's not the end of the world. It's just life. Life goes on. And so I think, you know, as I've said before, I don't believe Chinese consumers are any different than any other consumers. And we should expect to see uh, this return to normalcy. And that requires more energy. That's the thesis, right? We'll see what happens. You know, like I said before, you have copper over four. You have a lot of speculations now. You have oil kind of looks like it's bottom possibly and has been up to like the last four or five days. Um, We'll see. That doesn't mean we go directly to $150 a barrel. But, you know, uh, a lot of the companies in the portfolio, have paid down their debt over the two last couple years and cash flow tremendously at $85 Brent. Again, you know, I think last week we had a major discussion around uranium, remain very positive on it. I like to highlight these news items, not because individually they matter in the big scheme of things, but collectively the inertia continues to build. Um, South Korea to boost nuclear and downgrade renewables. Very positive news from South Korea today. Quote, from the article, South Korea will boost nuclear power generation and downgrade its plans for renewable energy as the nation overhauls its electricity mix to meet emissions reduction targets, unquote. So there you have it. I mean, um, I think that, uh, like I said, we've reached peak ESG. I made a video about that several weeks ago or a couple months ago um you're seeing the realization after the initial burst of excitement and government support reality is creeping into the into things um it's becoming obvious uh at least to people that want to have a rational energy policy that they can't do this with wind and solar and so nuclear is getting more and more traction becoming more and more of this part of the discussion and like i've said before it doesn't matter if you're You know, European or in these states, you know, you have to think globally uh, when you're talking about these energy mixes. You can't just think about have home country bias. Well, we haven't built a new, you know, reactors. We're closing reactors in Europe. Uh, What are you talking about? You have to look overall because the real growth in this is happening in the global south and the global east. Again, here's Saudi Arabia, plans to use domestic uranium for entire nuclear fuel cycle. Saudi Arabia's energy minister said on Wednesday, the kingdom intended to use its domestic uranium for the entire nuclear fuel cycle, which it doesn't have right now, by the way. It's going to build it, evidently. He added that the recent exploration had shown a diverse portfolio of uranium in the country. I do not know how large that is. I'd have to go check that out. Evidently, it's pretty high. But uh, I thought this was interesting. He he told a mining industry conference in Riyadh that this would involve the entire nuclear fuel cycle, which involves the production of yellow cake, low enriched uranium, and the manufacturing of nuclear fuel, both for our national use and, of course, for export. So, you know, new shooter at the table. Uh, I don't know what their resources are uh, and how long it would take them to develop. I think in the article it said something like by 2030. So, again, individually these things don't necessarily mean anything but collectively uh you see what the what's going on you know it's perfect you know nuclear is perfect for a place like the middle east because why not only do you get the electricity and then you can not you can cut down the oil and gas burn for your electricity generation but you know just the tremendous amount of waste heat that's generated by these reactors um, can be used for things like desalination plants and things of this nature so Um, there's other value as besides just making electricity. But uh, again, this is another brick in the wall of the positive uh, view that we have towards nuclear power. You know, the uranium stocks have not performed well, especially from a lot of the back end of 2022. I think a lot of interest is going to come back again. I think, you know, I've said this before, we're at the closer to the end of the tightening liquidity that we've experienced over the last year or so and uh space like uranium is a very small market cap it's a risk on type situation you have a lot of speculation going on especially with other geological miners that don't produce anything and i think that uh as liquidity returns which it will uh the chinese have already started a new liquidity cycle impulse injecting like 250 billion dollars into their economy just in december um but i think you're gonna you know you're closer to the end of the tightening cycle in the world than I think you are at the beginning. And as economies slow down, central banks will do what they always do. They will create liquidity uh, by QE and lowering rates and then you'll see risk money come back into these risk assets like uh, more speculative areas of the market like uranium mining. Not And notwithstanding the fact that the fundamentals are are continuously still positive, you really haven't had the big institutional uh, push into um, uranium mining. I think that's coming, especially as uh, a cover for the ESG, but you can only get so much money in this market. It's not that big of a market cap. I think at the last uranium cycle, the market cap for the industry was like $150 billion maybe. That's nothing uh, in the overall scheme of things. There's many, many companies in the S&P that have market caps bigger than $150 billion so this is something i wanted to uh, point out uh this is the msci emerging markets index it's up more than 20 percent since the low in october i'm just showing the last year Uh, i wouldn't necessarily bet my the farm on this but do we have a turn It looks like a you know breakout from the downtrend why do i bring this up well i think i've shown this chart before this is a chart that shows the Um, difference between the MSCI emerging markets and the MSCI world, basically emerging markets versus developed markets. Um, Obviously, the world index is dominated by the developed markets. And what I think you would note here is that you have these cycles, it seems to be, where emerging markets outperform developed markets. And it seems to go in eight to 10-year cycles. As you can see from like 88 to 94, that was like a six-year cycle. Then you had this pullback, bottomed, Then 2001 to 2010, then it topped out. Emerging markets have been in a downtrend since then for 12 years. And I think this kind of correlates with like commodity cycles a little bit. Why? A lot of your emerging markets, uh, like we just talked about, you know, um, are commodity producers. And so I think if you're in a commodity upcycle or a period where commodities are strengthened pricing, then you have a tendency for these emerging markets to outperform. So I'm not saying that we have a def- definitive turn here, but I would say this is very interesting in the context of looking at this chart. That have we bottomed? And you know, twenty percent in a market is considered a bull market. So uh, this is emerging markets. You can look at charts like if Mexico just recently the ETF there broke out. Um, I haven't went through all of the emerging markets, but um, I am noticing more interest in these markets as the obviously the dollar has weakened recently. So. There's a lot of intermarket relationships involved here, but I think that we may be on the cusp of a uh, move higher in emerging markets relative to developed markets uh, performance. And I thought this was interesting. I think I did show this chart before, but, you know, predicting these things, uh, again, you don't exactly hit the bottom or the top on these things. And so, you know, if you look at the previous cycles, is there something that, you know, would, would correlate, and I think it's, like I said, the correlation or the influence of strengthening commodity prices on emerging market economies. So I wanted to talk about gold. I got some emails and some messages about gold. And my stance on gold is the same. Um, I This is what happens, right, guys, with a lot of retail investors. Gold's been up since uh, October. Look at, uh, you can see this is a weekly chart. So there's only been like one or two down weeks in the last couple months. And so people are attracted to it now. It's the new shiny lure that went in front of, you know, the people's eyes. So they're following it now. Um, But I caution you, I'm not, I have a small position, as I mentioned, like a couple months ago in some junior miners as a speculation, because I thought that, you know, these things had been broken down so much. And I think my feeling was that again, that we're closer to the end of the liquidity cycle, tightening cycle, than we are the beginning. And so I think when liquidity returns, this type of risk asset will outperform. Um, I had talked about Bitcoin miners before on the channel, not in not just in general. Those have really outperformed recently. Bitcoin has kind of come off its bottom, uh, its recent lows. On miners, some of the miners are up 80%, you know, 100% some of the gold juniors are up 80 100 or more um, but am i ready to go hog wild no what i want to see is um what happens with uh again these are risk on liquidity fueled markets speculative markets and so what i want to see is what's going to happen in february Are we going to have another 50 basis points? Are we going to have 25 basis points? You see inflation coming down. You see the economic indicators. Now you have ISM um, and PMIs under 50 now, which indicates contraction in manufacturing um, here in the U.S. So um, at some point, you know, there's a lot of... I'm amazed listening to these Twitter spaces with guys that run billions of dollars, millions of dollars of money, and they'll just talk for hours about, you know well the fed's really committed this time you know i mean this is another lucy i mean this time last year relative like in december of last year or of 2022 or 21 i mean we were at zero we were at 0.25 on the fed funds rate and they weren't even talking about and they were saying inflation was transitory and so a year later i'm supposed to and this is the way we we have this like short term view of this thing so i don't get too caught up in this i know that The Federal Reserve and central banks exist for one thing. They are inflation creators. They create inflation. Okay. That's what they exist to do. They are controlled by the banks. Um, Jerome Powell comes from the financial sector and, uh, you know, he's trying to do this balancing act. Uh, And it's going to be interesting to see when the economy starts coming undone and will they be able to get rates down, inflation down to 2% before they have to reverse course and start tighten or start reliquifying the financial markets. We'll see. Um, but I think, you know, that's partially why you're seeing some of these risk assets come back. They're kind of forward looking, right? Nothing trades on previous information. You don't trade on the rear view mirror. You tre- trade on what's going to happen on in six months or so, six, eight months, a year. That's what traders look at. They're not looking at what happened in the past. So um, that's a possibility. The other possibility is uh, quite a few central banks are buying gold. Um, Just before the New Year, the Financial Times ran a piece noting that central banks were accumulating gold at a rate not seen in 55 years, which is pretty tremendous, actually. In the third quarter of 2022, analysts estimate that almost 400 tons of gold were bought by central banks. That much gold would take around 16 semi trailers trucks to transport. In November, traders in the gold market noted that there was a huge buyer entering the market and purchasing a very large volume of gold, a so-called whale. In December, it was revealed that this whale was the Chinese central bank. But it wasn't just the Chinese buying. Other buyers included Turkey, India, Uzbekistan, Egypt, Qatar, And Iraq. It is worth noting that many of these countries have expressed an interest in joining the BRICS alliance. So I think a lot of this has to do with, you know, seeing what has happened to other countries and specifically Russia recently. Why keep all of your assets in dollar based, you know, your your foreign currency, your uh, surpluses, whatever, what have you, in just US dollars? If you do something that the U.S. doesn't like, the so-called rules-based order uh, will uh, take your money away from you and you have no recourse. So it's just prudent as it is prudent for the individual to diversify. And golds you know, it's easy to diversify and you have storage risk, but it's not hard for a central bank or a government to store gold. They have vaults and they have guards with machine guns. It's not that hard. And the overall cost when you're talking about 400 tons of gold is not that much regard you know with respect to uh storage costs so uh it's easily sell. you can sell gold anywhere in any country in the world so it's uh it's a you know reserve asset and it's not a liability you know you don't have a counterparty you have no counterparty risk and so i think that's what makes it attractive do i think that i'm not a gold bug do i think that you know these countries are going to gold back their back their currencies with gold i don't think so Um, governments like the flexibility of being able to print money out of nothing to do things that they want to do, that they find politically expedient. But I do think that, uh, you know, we're due for another gold bull market just because of the, what we're seeing, um, again, I think, you know, central bank and government, you know, malfeasance, uh, this is why you want to have insurance. This is why, you know, Ray Dalio, Kyle Bass, other large investors keep, you know, a certain amount of percentage of their assets personal assets in precious metal physical precious metal just as insurance against as again as i've said before central bank and government malfeasance and so i don't you know especially what's happened recently i mean the us government has really made its position clear you're either with us or against us and if we if you fall in the disfavor one of the tools we will use in our so-called rules based order is to confiscate your assets and you have no recourse so it makes sense as insurance against that to diversify into something that they can't get their hands on. Um, Indonesia tells tin industry to be prepared for an export ban. You know, this is another theme that we we have. Um, longer term is resource nationalism. Um, these emerging markets, like Indonesia, for example don't want to be you know raw material colonies for more developed manufacturing places so they're telling people we have the materials that you need these things are in shorter supply and if you want them you have to build processing plants here or value-added plants here. We're not just going to dig the let you dig the ore up and then you know take it away and that's all that's all the value chain that we capture so uh, they've done this already with nickel. I guess, from, for some success, and so they're considering it with Indonesia. So here's what the article says. Indonesian authorities are preparing data and assessing current industry conditions to be ready in the event that the government decides to bring in a ban on tin exports, a senior mining industry official said on Wednesday. The Southeast Asian country, which is the world's top tin exporter, has already moved to halt shipments of a number of other metals in order to develop more processing at home. That's more jobs and more value add for Indonesia. That was my own comment. Uh, Indonesia's nickel ore export ban has attracted massive investment into nickel plants, and the president of Indonesia had repeatedly said he wanted to replicate that policy for bauxite and tin. Bauxite, as you know, is the precursor for aluminum. So uh, this makes sense. You know, doing, you know, governments should exist to do what's best for their citizens and capturing more of the value of your raw materials instead of just being a raw material exporting colony for other countries um, ain't isn't going to fly anymore. And so you're going to see more of this, not less of this. This is going to make things more expensive and uh, make it take it longer to develop. I mean, if they shut down 10 exports, then you have to go there and build 10 Processing facilities that doesn't happen in a year, right? So, or a month. So, um, you take a certain amount of s- supply of tin off the world market until that is done, uh, as something similar which happened to nickel. So, um, if you're Indonesian, you should applaud this. If you're a user of tin, you should be prepared to pay more for tin. And uh, this is, I think, a trend that is not specific to Indonesia. You will see more of this as we go forward, not less of it. Um, I wanted to point this out uh, again. You see this. This is the S&P versus the TSX Venture. The reason I want to point this out, TSX Venture is the Toronto Exchange, the Venture Exchange. That's where you have a lot of your junior mining, smaller oil and gas companies, things of this nature, more volatile, risky type companies that are predominantly um, resource extraction businesses. And what you've seen here is, again, again, we don't want to give too much attribution to the squiggly lines on the chart, but you see this move higher recently in the TSX Venture Exchange versus the S&P. When this is going down, the S&P is outperforming the mining stocks, the junior mining stocks on the TSX Venture. You see this little breakout here. You can barely see it. This chart's a little bit light. I think this is interesting. Again, it doesn't mean I'm bullish now, but it's another, are people positioning, do they see something getting ready to happen where um, commodities resource type companies are going to outperform the S&P companies? Um, I think this, you know, we have to, we should watch this because this would uh, be an interesting tell, right? Uh, this thing's really come down over 2022. Um, as we had you know an initial outperformance and then with the fall off in the last six months, but now it looks like we may be, you know, putting in a bottom and breaking higher. So something to keep in mind. Um, this is an article that was on Zero Hedge, and it was a link to a paper written by this um, Dr. Wallace Mannheimer. And the title of the article on Zero hedge was net zero will lead to the end of modern civilization. Um, again, people ask why, why are you bringing these things up on a financial channel? Well, this is actionable. This is part of the view that we have about the heads you win tails you win more. You know, the Western governments, have decided that they're going to pursue this net zero policy, uh, the global east and west, where the majority of the people live and the majority of the purchasing power is going to be over the next couple decades, are not, they're giving lip service to this. So, what does this really mean, okay, when you say net zero? See, these people, again, I follow the uh, view that you should define your terms so that people actually know what you're talking about if you stay ambiguous, or you don't, you know, I listen to this, for example, I don't like to pick on these people. This is really shows my irritation. You had this uh, bat, they want to ban now gas fire gas burning stoves, right? Because they supposedly cause at all these health issues. And then you have this ridiculous AOC person made a TikTok video or something. I saw it on Twitter. Oh, yes, I have a gas stove, but I just rent my house. So it doesn't apply to me. I mean, just the preponderance of ignorance, hypocrisy, nonsense is—you cannot have a modern civilization if this is what kind of people are in leadership positions making policy. And we have too much of this nonsense. This is why you know I like to read these papers because it tells you what's going to happen. I think one of the quotes in here is perfect because it goes back to what I've said before. You know, I I've said this before and recommended books about this, about energy return on energy invested when we were a basically animal and human labor based energy uh, sources back in before the steam engine and what life was like there. That's what this paper basically gets into and how wonderful the discovery of these high density fuels like coal and petroleum have been to our life and people take it for granted and they shouldn't do that because um, your life would be a lot different if it wasn't for coal Steam engine, internal combustion engines, and and things of this nature. So, anyways, here's a few. Uh, I suggest you read the paper. It's like uh, 19 pages, I think, uh, from this Wallace Manheimer. But there's a couple quotes from the article I wanted to point out. In a recently published science paper, Dr. Wallace Manheimer said it would be the end of modern civilization. He's talking about net zero, writing about wind and solar power, he argued it would be especially tragic. Quote: When not only will this new infrastructure fail, but will cost trillions trash large portions of the environment, and be entirely unnecessary, unquote. The stakes, he added, are, quote, are enormous. Mannheimer points out that before fossil fuel became widely used, energy was provided by people and animals. That's exactly what we said. This had all kinds of uh, detrimental effects to uh, the way people lived their lives. Because so little energy was produced, basically two to one energy return on energy invested on animal and human power. Basically, you're relying on your crop yields to produce enough food for yourself and enough fodder for your animals so that you could make it to the next spring to plant again. That That's why civilization didn't really take off. It was grinding higher uh, very slowly because there was no surplus of energy that could be used to to better people's lives you were basically at a subsistence level scratching out a living like a hobbit says here because so little energy was produced quote civilization was a thin veneer atop a vast mountain of human squalor and misery a veneer maintained by such institutions as slavery colonialism and tyranny unquote yes i agree with that that's exactly right because you didn't have Sur- huge surpluses of energy, where you could be self-sufficient or invest in new technology and advanced civilization, you had to exploit other people, other countries. This is why you had wars and plunder and things like this. In Mannheimer's view, the partnership among self-interested businesses, grandstanding politicians, and alarmist campaigners, quote, truly is an unholy alliance, unquote. The climate industrial complex does not promote discussion on how to overcome this challenge in a way that will be best for everyone. Quote, we should not be surprised or impressed that those who stand to make a profit are among the loudest calling for politicians to act, unquote, he added. This is, again, human nature. This is Charlie Munger's um, advice. Show me the incentive and I'll tell you the outcome. Okay, when I first was involved in the renewable industry, it was was small, it didn't have the constituency that it has now, it didn't have the level of, you know, it was a bunch of hobbyists and first movers and guys in their garage building windmills, and then this thing got going and then people latched onto it, then you created these various lobbying groups, industry associations that are filled with lawyers and lobbyists that funnel money to politicians Uh, from the manufacturers and the developers that are part of these organizations. It's the same thing that goes on in pharma. It's the same thing that goes on in the defense industry um, or any other area where um, there's money to be made or money to glom onto on the federal budget. You create these groups. Now you have an industry that's so large and employs so many people and has so much uh, lobbying power. Uh, That, you know, you have the entire um, media, scholastic, university systems, politicians, news media, everybody behind this. And so it has its own inertia. And so uh, this is why it continues. This is why we don't, again, we're not policymakers here. We look at the policies in place. We look at what they're going to spend on it. It doesn't matter. They're not coming to us and asking us what we think. Uh, There's people waste more than me, like Mark Mills and people like that, that constantly lecture on this, write papers on it. Um, And, you know, I think the cracks are starting to form in the ESG narrative. But in the end, when there's hundreds of billions of dollars uh, of potential cash sitting there, um, people are going to go, you know, they're going to advocate to grab as much of that for themselves as they can. In the end, though, as we've done that and focused on these technologies that cannot in his view like he said before um that this new infrastructure will fail but cost trillions um we have not taken those trillions and efficiently invested them into new oil and gas coal or nuclear uh and then we are going to pay the price for that with i believe uh an energy crisis which we're currently in and is currently in hiatus in some places like europe but has not been solved and um I think you will see, again, I've said that we will see ultimately before the end of this crisis, You know, what are we at, five or 6% now of energy being uh, as a component of the S&P? There's no reason that by the end of this cycle, we can't end up at 20 to 25% of the S&P being energy like it was in the late 70s and early 80s when we had the last really major worldwide energy crisis. And I think people will be surprised. That will be the time, of course, to sell. And that's nowhere on the horizon over the next year or so. But I suspect by the end of the decade, um, people will be shocked about this. And I believe that you will actually see, because of the energy crisis that we will be in and continue, the public policymakers will be exchanged out for more rational ones. And you could even see a situation where uh, instead of subsidies going to uh, rebuildables and these nonsensical uh, storages, technologies, and electric vehicles, where you see the reemergence. You actually see policymakers trying to incentivize uh, fossil fuel and nuclear. So, to a large extent. So, that's my view. Um, I think it's actionable. Uh, again, our portfolio did very well last year. Obviously, it suffered, you know, you're going to have volatility, it kind of made its high around June of last year. And then as oil and gas prices and other commodity prices slid, um, we pulled back, but we were still positive, we handily beat the S&P. So I think that we're on the right track here. Uh, Again, I, I, I suggest reading these things. I don't put these things here for confirmation bias. Um if somebody wants to propose, you know, the other side of why oil and gas is going away uh, like these people that say peak demand, well, they don't take into account the emerging markets they, you know, these, these emerging markets require, especially you have these emerging middle classes, emerging demand for the things that you have, they want. And how do you get there without, you know, more and more supply of fossil fuels? I just don't see it. So um, I don't see oil and gas topping demand topping out in the next, you know, Three years, like some folks are saying, it's people that are actually smart people, and so you know, I'm happy to have those arguments and somebody make the argument why, you know, what I what I see is is that the pressure that the political class and the media, especially in the West, are putting on a lot of these fossil fuel producers are simply not going to invest in the current climate, and that will affect uh, supply, and that you know the demand doesn't go away again. Um, look to the East, look to the global East, the global South, that's where your demands coming from. That's where the relentless, uh, urbanization, industrialization, people entering the middle class that requires huge, tremendous amounts of energy inputs. And that simply will not be provided by solar panels in places like India, it's just not going to happen. Um, and that's not how you're going to get, uh, higher wealth levels in those countries. Fossil fuels are integral to the um, and nuclear will become because intermittent sources do not work in a 24-7 economy. It's just that simple. And again, getting this right is going to determine how well I think you do this decade in investing. If you get this wrong, if you uh, don't understand what's going on and you're on the wrong side of this uh, thing, I think that you're going to severely underperform. That would be my view. Okay, guys, that's it for this week. I believe this is the last slide. Yes, uh, that's it for this week. Appreciate the support. Let's get over 10,000 subscribers. Again, if you're not a subscriber and you enjoy the channel, please subscribe. It helps the channel a lot. Want to hit 10,000? We get to 10,000, we'll have a live stream and uh, invite people and uh, have have some celebration about that. But I want to get to that 10,000 level. It's kind of uh, that number I've been slowly grinding towards, and uh, we need your help. All right, guys, that's it for this week. We'll talk to you next week.